Well, as Matt said, we're continuing this morning in this season of Epiphany. And it's a season, as we've been talking about, in which we're focusing specifically upon the revelation of Jesus Christ as A, the Son of God, and B, the Savior of the world. And as we continue today, we come to Luke chapter 5 in the study of the Gospel of Luke that we're in, and with it, we come to at least three interconnected stories that make that point, first of all, that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God and Savior of the world, so look for His divinity in these stories, but then now begin also to shape and to form and to begin to reveal to us and to clarify exactly what kind of salvation it is that this Jesus, Son of God, Savior of the world, has come into the world now to bring. And we'll see that, among other things... He's come into the world to bring us a salvation that, first of all, makes us clean. And by that, I don't mean on the outside of us, and I don't mean temporarily, okay? Jesus didn't come into the world in the first century to introduce humanity to the benefits of better hygiene. That's not it. It's far more significant than that. The cleansing that He came into the world to bring penetrates deep down into the core of every single one of us, our deepest, our darkest, our most secret, our most hidden, our most protected in some cases, and, well, frankly, then also our most defiled parts. And He makes us clean in there once and for all. Kind of a cool thing. So the salvation He came into the world to bring, we'll see, first of all, makes us clean, but then secondly, it makes us useful. And by that, I mean it makes us useful in pointing other people to Jesus. And I love the way that He makes us useful. You'll see it in these stories. He makes us useful in ways that redeem the very things that He came into the world to cleanse and deliver us from. He takes our failures. He takes our suffering. He takes our colossal and most humiliating mistakes, and He comes along and says, not only am I going to cleanse you of this, not only am I going to forgive you for this, but watch what I do with this. This is going to be cool. You see this huge failure? Okay, this is going to become a microphone through which you proclaim me to the world. Oh, you remember that season of suffering you had no idea what it was about? This is what it's about. It's to become a microphone for you to proclaim me to the world. You get the idea? And so what happens is these things become for us things that, you know, clearly we wouldn't want to go back to and relive, but they become things that now we look upon as we see what the Lord does with them, and we go, you know, in light of what He's doing, I also wouldn't go back and change it. So look for that in these stories, but look for something else too. Look for Christ Himself. You know, we're not coming to the Bible and coming to these stories as sort of an intellectual exercise. I'm going to learn about Jesus, and I'm going to learn about what that means, that He's the Son of God, and I'm going to learn about what it means that He's the Savior of the world. I don't know about you, but I want to find Jesus Himself in the story. I'm coming looking for Him and for His heart. And you'll see it in every one of these little stories that we're going to look at today. So we pick up our study today in Luke chapter 5, where the first of these three interconnected stories that we're going to look at involves Peter. And Peter at this point is not the great world-changing apostle and Christian church leader who will end up literally leading tens of thousands of people, if not more, to the Savior. That's who he will become. Today when we meet him, he's just a fisherman. That's who he is. It's what he does. And frankly, it is a hard, boring monotonous life. Maybe you can relate to that. Here's what Peter's life consisted of. It consisted of fishing all night and sleeping all day. Oh, and then fishing all night and then sleeping all day. 
And again, guess what? Fishing all night and then sleeping all day. Hey, what am I going to do tomorrow? I know I'm going to fish all night and then I'm going to sleep all day after monotonous day in which I then wake up sometime in the late afternoon and trudge down to the seashore where I have left my great big wooden fishing boat and I meet the rest of my team because Peter is the boss and fishing is his business. And together with these guys, and it would take them all doing this, they'll put their shoulder then to that great big heavy boat and push it off into the water. And I say great big heavy boat because we're not talking about canoes. They've unearthed some of these boats. If you go to Israel with us next year, you'll go out onto the Sea of Galilee, and your journey on the Sea of Galilee will end at a little museum. And in that museum, they've got what's called the Jesus boat. Not because he like etched his name in the side or something, but because it's representative of the kind of boats that these guys use. So this boat is likely 27 feet long and about seven and a half feet wide. It's big, it's heavy, it's wood. They push it off into the water. They get in it, their nets are already in it, and then they get to row out to the fishing spots that they inherited from their dads, who inherited them from their dads, who inherited them from their dads, who inherited them from their dads. Get the idea? This is what they do. Six days a week almost every week of the year, from the time that they're big enough to be at all helpful. That's Peter's life. You get out to your fishing spot, you pull out your net. How long is the net? It's not like one of these deals on a little wire thing and you can, you know, it's not like that. It's made of linen. It's a hundred feet long. When it's wet, it weighs about a thousand pounds. How strong are these guys? How hard is this? So they get out to the fishing spot, they take out their nets, they set them in a big circle, and then they pull in their net and gather their fish. And then they set it in a circle and pull in their net and gather their fish. And then they set it in a circle and pull in their net and gather their fish. Kind of predictable. Then they go to their next fishing spot and do the same thing. And then their next fishing spot and do the same thing until finally day begins to dawn. And the sun starts to come up. And the fishing is over because when you fish with nets, you fish at night, at least there. Because that's when the fish come up from the bottom. You don't want to have to drag them up from the bottom. Oh, and it's also a time of day when the fish have a harder time actually seeing the nets that you're trying to catch them in. And so then when the sun comes up, your fishing day is over, and then you row, pretty doggone exhausted, I would think, back to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. You dock your big heavy wooden boat, and there's a crowd of people waiting for you. Why? Because they've shown up for breakfast, and they're hoping you have it with you. So you set up your little fish market, you sell your fish, you pay your guys, you go home, and you go to bed so that you can wake up five, six hours later, and then do it again. So it's on one of those mornings after Peter and his guys have been fishing all night and caught exactly zero fish, so that's a great night. And Peter rows in and he parks his boat on the beach and they unload the big heavy nets and they spread them out on the, on the rocks and they start to mend the nets, you know, because the nets are your livelihood. They clean the nets. They literally have to wait for the nets to completely dry so they don't rot when you fold them up and you put them away. And he's in the process of all of this when Jesus himself comes down to the waterfront, maybe to buy breakfast, maybe to preach to the crowd that he knows would naturally be gathered there or maybe both. But he starts to preach as Peter and his guys are kind of wrapping things up. And Jesus is pretty well known at this point. Jesus is becoming a bit of a phenom. He is an amazing, gifted preacher and teacher. No one has ever taught like this guy. And so the crowds naturally gather around him. And not only that, but he can heal people. He can do things that no one else can do and that there really are no other options for those people for. 
no hospitals, no doctors. And so this crowd starts getting frantic, and they're pressing in against Jesus, who's like, you know, backed up to the Sea of Galilee. And he looks over, and he sees Peter's boat right there. And so Jesus literally climbs into the bow of Peter's boat, and he looks at Peter and says, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you just kind of push me off here with your guys and just take me out about 10 feet or something and let me teach from there? And so Peter kind of looks at his guys like, I mean, I know we're supposed to be going home, but this guy is pretty amazing. They're all like, all right, let's do it. So they push off. Jesus teaches for how long? We don't know. But we do know that when he ends, something very unexpected, at least from Peter's perspective, happens. Because Luke tells us, chapter 5, verse 4, that when Jesus had finished speaking to this crowd that's on the beach while he's in the boat, he said to Simon, that's Peter, incidentally, he said to Simon Peter, now notice this, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, I'm sorry, but that just sounds crazy. Like, I think Peter shows great restraint. Inside, he had to be thinking, Lord, listen, you know, I mean, you're an amazing teacher, and I think maybe you should just stick with that, you know? I don't think, based on this request, that you understand much about fishing, so let me rehearse a few things for you. A, we've already fished today. We did it at night. That's when you do it with nets. That's when you do it with nets. B, we didn't just go out into the deep somewhere. We went to where the fish are because, like, we know these, like, we know when to do this, how to do this, where to do this. We, we got all that down. We caught nothing. Zero. Zip. Nada. And C, we're exhausted. I mean, we've been hauling these thousand-pound nets empty, which is discouraging, incidentally, all night long, rowing and doing all this stuff. I've already stayed up much later and kept my boys up much later than we're supposed to. We should be REM sleeping right now. And we're out here in a boat with you, so now we're going to go out, right? And then we're going to put out our nets, and they're going to get all wet and full of stuff again, and then we're going to have to bring them back and bring you back, and we're going to catch nothing. This is a total exercise in futility. And then we're going to have to stretch them back out onto the rocks, clean them, mend them, wait for them to dry, fold them up, and then what? I guess we could just go right back out fishing again for tomorrow night or whatever, you know? This is a bad idea, or so it seems. And I think the truth is that the Lord asks us to do things that we in our wisdom, I'll just put that in quotes, since he's God and all, look at and in our experience seem like a really bad idea. What we need to do is what Peter does. He sees enough in Jesus to go with it. It says, and Simon Peter answered, and I think he answered respectfully, by the way, because he calls him master. He recognizes that there's a captain of the boat and it isn't Peter. <laughs> he says, master... We, we, we did that, we, we, we tried all night, and, well, we took nothing. But, at your word, I will let down the nets. And so then after a few awkward moments with his guys, where he's going, just go with it, just go with it, you know, just go with it, just, it's going to be fast, we're not going to catch anything, and you know it, so let's just go. They go out there, and they put out the net. And what happens? You know the story. Hopefully you've looked at it this week in your personal worship. Okay, they catch a load of fish so big that the net starts breaking, and they have to call for another boat frantically, right, to come out from the, from the shore. And then they fill these boats so full 
that the boats begin to sink. And at some point in this process, while these guys are freaking out, trying to get the fish and trying to bail the boats, and I mean, they've never seen anything quite like this. They've done it all their lives. It dawns on Peter that the one who is in the bow of his boat is the one whose dominion stretches even to the bottom of the seas. Now, who is that? That is no ordinary man. That is somebody who is God himself. And I think at that point, Peter stopped caring about fish and about bailing water and about holding you know, his part of the net and about ropes and about frantic men who were trying to get all these fish in and not sink. I think at that point, Peter just kind of waded through these fish, which are what, like thigh deep, to the front of the boat where Jesus is, and he falls as best he can before the Lord on his knees. And I want you to hear what he says. Verse 5, he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful, or you might even say, an incredibly unclean man, O Lord. Probably weren't expecting that. That is the universal response of every human being who consciously enters into the presence of God in the Bible. Everyone does that. And here's why, because when you enter into the presence of God, the light of His holiness is so bright that it penetrates to the deepest, darkest, most secret, most closeted, and most defiled parts of you. And it leaves you with nowhere to run. It leaves you with no denials or excuses. It leaves you with no, nowhere to hide. It's, it's lit up. It, it, it is seen. It's it's revealed. It's revealed to you, and you know in that moment that it too is revealed to him. And that is absolutely traumatic. And so now notice what Jesus says, because it's not only cleansing, it leads to usefulness. And in addition to that, it shows the kindness of his heart, of who he is, of what he's like. Jesus doesn't berate Peter, and he totally could have gone off on him. I mean, Peter's right, is he not? Jesus could have said, you got it, man. Ding, 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 ding. Way to go. You get the prize. You are utterly depraved, completely filthy. I can't believe it took this to make you see it. But finally, Peter, you get it and you're right. I don't want to be anywhere close to you. Good grief. You make me sick. Row me into shore. You know what? Forget it. I'm a walk on water guy. I'll just run. I'm getting out right here. And I'm going to get as far away from you as I can. He doesn't do that to him. He doesn't do that to you. He says, do not be afraid. Now, why does he need to say that? Because Peter's scared. It's traumatic. It evokes fear when you're that real, when you're that revealed. Do not be afraid, Peter. My salvation is going to make you clean, buddy. And not just clean, but useful. He claims his entire life. He says, from now on, you will be catching men. That is to say, you're going to spend the rest of your days pointing people to me. And you'll be better at it, by the way, for all of the monotony of the life that you've lived until now, for all the hard work that you've put in, for all the discouraging and disappointing days like this one that you've experienced because fishing for men, it's hard. It's discouraging. 
can be really disappointing. So the kind of salvation that Jesus came into this world to bring makes us clean, that's first of all, but then secondly, it makes us useful, and useful in a way that redeems our experiences, that redeems our disappointments, that makes sense of our previous life when it felt like it was going nowhere and it meant nothing. But in case we miss that, so then Luke gives us a second story, beginning in verse 12, where he says that while Jesus was in one of the cities there in Galilee, there came a man, what, full of leprosy. So this guy is not mildly associated with the disease of leprosy. He has an advanced case of it. And leprosy is horrifying. And in Jesus' day, there was no cure. So leprosy shows up, first of all, on your eyelids and the palms of your hands, little flecks on your eyelids and the palms of your hands, and then it spreads from there to the rest of your body, oh joy, covering your body with these scales, if you will, and causing your skin to erupt in open oozing sores, and that's just what it does on the outside. On the inside, it eats down into your flesh, it goes down to your nerves and attacks your nerves and it deadens your senses, so now I can't feel anything, for example, with my hands or with my feet. Now what's the problem with that? Well then, if I cut my finger or burn my finger or crush my finger. I break my finger. I don't even know it. I don't feel it. I have an infection in my finger. Really? You're kidding. Oh, look at that. How long has that been there? It was not uncommon for lepers to lose fingers and toes, just be missing them entirely because they didn't feel it when they reached in and grabbed something and burned it or whatever. It disfigured you facially as well. Leprosy commonly ate away the inside of your nose, and then it would collapse in on itself. It's horrifying. It was thought to be highly contagious. It actually isn't, but they thought that it was. And so then as a result, when you thought you had leprosy, you were taken to the priest, and the priest would examine you and make the diagnosis. You have leprosy. Do you know what that means for you socially? You lose everything. Your husband, your wife, your kids, your parents, your siblings... Everybody you know, all of your friends, everyone you do business with, your business, everything done, the people in your church or in their case in their synagogues, you are actually kicked out of your city and forced to live outside the walls of your city, typically in a cave, usually with a few other lepers, and then they would occasionally deliver food to you in mercy so that you had something to eat. You're out. They made a spectacle of you when you had a leper, and the reason for that is for the protection of everyone else. And so by law, you had to leave your hair unkempt. You had to take your clothing and tear it. You had to cover the lower part of your face and nose with some kind of a cloth. You had to walk around, that is to say, as if you were in mourning. You were going to a burial service, to a funeral, and in fact you were, but it was your own. Lepers were made to wear cowbells so you could hear them coming. We're not allowed within six feet of other people. And when they came into the presence of other people, to warn them, they were to raise their hands and they were to cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. And they watched then as people would just dive out of the way in fear and in horror. Because according to the Jewish law, they were in fact unclean. And anyone they touched and anything they touched became unclean. And so then while Jesus was in one of the cities there in Galilee, there came a man full of leprosy who as a result for some time had been living without hope, without joy, without love, without dignity, and without even the benefit of human touch. 
And when that man full of leprosy heard that Jesus came to town, he left his little leper's cave and he said, I'm going in. I'm going to go in the city. I'm going to meet this Jesus. And so here he comes, cowbell ringing, hands in the air, unclean, unclean, shouting from his mouth, you know. There's Jesus, crowd around Jesus, because there's always a crowd around Jesus. And the crowd parts like the Red Sea to get out of this guy's way. And notice what the Lord does. It says that this man fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, if you're willing to do this, he's saying, you can make me, here it is, clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and said, bud, just stay right there, man. <laughs> like, you don't need to come any closer to me than this, seriously. I don't know when you looked in the mirror the last time, but you are not attractive. I don't know what you know about personal hygiene and all that. I mean, I recognize there will be advances in that regard later in history, but really, seriously, you need to wash up. You are a spectacle, and nobody wants to see this mess. I don't need you to come any closer for me to heal you. And in fact, you could have just sent me a note. I could have done it from here to your cave. So proximity has nothing to do with my capacity to take care of this problem for you. It's not what he does. With the outwardly, most visibly, honestly disgusting of people. Look what the Lord does, because it shows you his heart, who he is. He doesn't berate Peter, and he doesn't run from this man. It says, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. That is shocking. It's very personal. It's quite wonderful, really. He touches this man who has not been touched in what? How long? Advanced case of leprosy? Oh, quite a while. And then he says, I will, I will heal you. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And so then you've got to imagine this guy standing there looking at his flesh as it's miraculously, and that's what this is, being renewed. He's looking at his fingers, you know, and he's watching a few of them anyway, being reborn. He's, he's feeling his face and he's thinking, wait a minute, you know, like because his nose is being reformed. His senses are returning. And then Jesus says something to him. It's kind of curious. It says that Jesus charged him to tell no one about any of this, you know? And you're like, well, I don't know why you would even need to be told that. I mean, if there's a crowd, I'm guessing this would be quite the spectacle. Like, they would go tell people, would they not? I think the Lord has a very particular mission to, for this guy. I think he makes the mission clear. I think what he's saying is, listen, it's going to be tempting for you to want to go home. Don't go home yet. Oh, you're going to pass by on this mission that I'm going to send you on your children's school? Yeah, just keep walking. You can stop there on the way back. I know that you're going to walk down Main Street and pass your business. And you're going to want to poke your head in and go, hey, guys, the boss is back, so chop, chop, you know, let's go. I want to see the books when I return. Don't do that. He says, go and show yourself to the priest, which he had to do by law. He had to be declared clean by the priest before he could reenter society. So he needed to do this anyway, but, but Jesus is sending him there not just because he needs to do this but for a reason, and he gives us the reason. He says, go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded, and here's why, for a proof to them, to the priests of Israel. 
But a proof of what? Well, that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God and Savior of the world who has come bringing a salvation that A, makes us clean, and B, makes us useful. And how is this guy made useful? In a way that redeems his leprosy. According to the rabbinical writings of that day, healing or cleansing a leper was deemed to be equal to, tantamount to, raising a man from the dead, and no leper had been cleansed, much less declared clean by a priest since the days of Elijah. So this priest is about to have a very interesting day. And you can imagine the reverberation of this announcement through the priesthood of Israel, and for that matter, through the entire nation of Israel. This guy was a major proof, a witness, that apart from his leprosy, he would never have had opportunity to do. Stunning. So Jesus makes us clean, makes us useful, just in case we don't have that. Story number three. Story number three involves a paralyzed man. And paralysis in that day was even worse than it is today, and I know that's a big statement, isn't it? That's a really big statement, but I think it's a fair statement because they didn't have any rehab facilities, they didn't have any treatment centers, they didn't have any in-home nursing care, they didn't have any handicapped bathrooms or the modern-day conveniences that allow somebody with dignity to do things like go to the bathroom. They didn't have vans or cars or handicapped accessible vehicles or parking spaces or any of that stuff. They didn't even have wheelchairs. And so the guy that we meet in this story is a guy whose entire life is confined to a mat that's three feet wide and six feet long. And the only time that he ever got out of the house was when his four really amazing friends showed up and each grabbed a corner and carried him out like they did on the day that Jesus came to Capernaum, their hometown. The problem being that by the time they show up in the little house there in Capernaum, and the homes there in Capernaum are very small. When you go there today, you see that. So when they show up, the house is full. Packed to the gills with people, people pouring out the door, people around the windows, everybody straining to see Jesus, to hear Jesus. There's no shot of four guys with a three-by-six mat getting in the door. It's not going to happen, but these guys will not be denied. And so what they do is they climb up the little staircase on the side of the home, and the reason that's there is because the roofs were used as patios. So they had a staircase to the patio. They climbed up the staircase. They carried their buddy up the staircase. They laid him down on the roof over here, let's say, and then they marked out where they felt like Jesus was pretty much standing. And then these guys began to dig through the roof. And I say dig through the roof because the way it was constructed is you have stone walls, but they would lay timbers across the top of the stone walls. And then on top of the timbers, they would put mattings of branches and twigs and sticks and whatnot, and then they would pour about a foot of mud or clay over the top of that, and that's your roof. So these guys mark out their spot that they're going to dig through, and all four guys dive in and start digging through the earth, really, is what it is. And you can imagine that scene from the inside of the house, because here's Jesus, and everybody's, you know, dialed in on his message, and then all of a sudden, there's like this ruckus on the roof, man, and it's like, what is going on on the roof, you know? There's scrape, scratching and scraping sounds on the roof. I mean, eventually, like, dust and little pieces of twigs start falling off, you know, people are coughing and sneezing, the homeowner's calling State Farm, you know, and <laughs> State Farm's telling him, look, there's an exclusion in your policy for acts of God. 
So if this is an act of God, we're sorry. Just kidding. I have State Farm, for the record. They are good to me. But all of a sudden, this shaft of light begins to beam through this roof into this dark, stuffy, stinky, dust-filled room. And everybody, as best they can, without getting stuff in their eyes, is trying to see what in the world is going on, and the hold gets bigger, and the light gets brighter. And finally, you can see four hands, or four pairs of hands tearing up the roof, and four muddy faces, and then... When they get the hole big enough, what do they do? They tie ropes to the corners of this three-by-six-foot mat. Now, I want you to visualize this, okay? Each guy takes a corner, and they come over the roof, this hole in it, and then they begin to slowly lower their buddy down through, I'm going to say it, the earth to Jesus. Now, does that sound like anything? Have you ever been to a burial service? Have you ever seen a coffin go down? into the earth. What are we doing in that moment? People of faith, what do we do? We are entrusting our beloved dead to Jesus, whom we believe will one day command that person to rise and remove the defilements of death and restore them eternally to usefulness. They lower their buddy through the earth, if you will, this earthen roof, down, and he lands right in front of Jesus, and everybody, and obviously Jesus, knows exactly why it is that they've gone through all of this to get this guy in front of him, okay? They've brought him to Jesus so that he might be healed of his paralysis. Pretty simple. Except that Jesus looks at this man, and this is a stunning thought, and he sees and he recognizes that he is suffering from a malady that's even worse than first century quadriplegia. Wow. And what is that? He looks at this man and he says, Man, your sins are forgiven you. That's an eternal malady. That's a far greater kind of suffering. It's a much more valuable healing, but that's not what anybody was looking for. Like, I don't think the guys on the roof broke out in a party and went, woo-hoo, we thought he was going to cure him of paralysis. This is even better, you know. I don't. I don't think everybody started high-fiving. He forgave their sins. In fact, you know the religious leaders don't because that's what happens next says that the scribes and the Pharisees who are in that room see the whole thing, hear what Jesus says, began to then question the idea being within themselves. They're not saying this out loud. They're not verbalizing it. But here's what they're thinking. They're thinking, who is this one who speaks blasphemies for who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, they've done the right math equation there. Only God can do that. That's, in fact, true. And now notice what Jesus does. He reads their minds which also is something only God can do. But apparently that just goes right over their heads. It says, Jesus then perceived their thoughts, and he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? And then he nails the very issue that they're wondering about, and he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, language of resurrection, rise 
pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying the Lord. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, understatement of the year, we have seen extraordinary things today through this Jesus who came into the world as the Son of God and Savior of the world to bring a salvation that makes us clean, not out here, but in here. Frankly, that's where we need it. And then to make us useful in a way that collects up all of the so-called meaningless things in our life, all the head-scratchers, and redeems them. Redeems our forms of paralysis. The many ways that we prove ourselves to be lepers. So I wrote down some questions to help you process it. So when was the last time, question number one, that you stood in the presence of Jesus and in His presence recognized, like Peter did, your own corruption and need to be made clean. Because it seems to me that that's what happens. Like when you really come into the presence of the Lord and you really experience and recognize Him for who He truly is, the light of His holiness penetrates the deepest, darkest parts of your heart, parts that you've got shut down, parts that maybe you're cultivating. I'm watering this part of my heart. I'm fertilizing this part of my heart. I'm growing all this stuff. I'm cultivating this stuff. And it's awful stuff. It's I need to be rid of this stuff kind of stuff. So then question number two, what specifically do you need to be made clean of? What are you cultivating? What are you growing? What is the produce, if you will, that isn't the production of the fruit of the Spirit? It's production of something very different. What is your leprosy? What is your paralysis? Because the message is that Jesus came to, to clean that, to cure that. Thirdly, what painful experience or devastating failure do you need today to entrust to the Lord so that He might use it, even if it's embarrassing? Like, God brought you through something, and now He's saying, you know, here's a microphone, this thing you went through, this deliverance now that you've had, this cleansing that I've given you. Will you make the sacrifice of talking to other people and using yourself as the example of the kinds of things I can do, or different way of looking at it, if you're in the middle of it right now, you need then to persevere through it knowing that Jesus will one day redeem it by using you to make you a proof or a witness to the fact that He really is the Son of God and Savior of the world, come to make us clean and useful, even when you can't see it now. Day after day after day, Peter fished and probably thought, well, I guess this is it. 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 He didn't know what the Lord was going to do with his life. Year after year after year, the leper was a leper. No hope. He didn't see that God could use that, and neither did the paralytic. God majors in doing that. Out of death, He brings life. Fourthly, how is God using you to point people to Jesus, and and or how does God want to use you to point people to Jesus? Because sometimes we already know the answer to that question. We just, we're just looking at it and going, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, that's like going fishing in the day with nets. 
ridiculous, except that you're God. So we'll try it and see what you can miraculously do. Or we're looking at it and going, well, I guess we showed up late. No shot of getting in there. Going up the roof would be kind of treacherous, and then we'd have to dig through this guy's roof, and then we're going to have to fix his roof because this is an act of God. There's an exclusion in the insurance policy. It's not going to work. So. Whatever it is, I think you need, you need to do it is the point. All right, lastly, did you see the heart of the Savior in this story? Because he doesn't berate Peter. He comforts him. And he doesn't berate you either. He comforts you. He doesn't do a long-distance healing of the leper. He touches him. That's amazing. And He does that for you as well. He doesn't just heal the paralytic in his body, but He cures the paralytic soul. Did you see the heart of Jesus? Because that's the Jesus who invites you to bring yourself and all of your stuff down in here to Him, as well as every experience, every failure, every humiliation, every head-scratcher, all of it to Him, that you might be made clean and useful. And then He might go about redeeming it all to His glory and for the benefit of His kingdom. All right? So consider that as you go forth. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for... um, your word, which is full of stories and pictures and images of our Savior. And I pray, God, as we come to your word, that we don't come academically only. We don't come merely as those who seek to learn, but we come as those who seek to find, to experience, to feel, to sense, to meet with the Lord. God, capture us not just with titles, Son of God, Savior of the world, not just with accomplishments, makes clean, makes useful. Capture us with who Jesus is, the one who comforts us, the one who touches us, the one who takes us in and, and heals our greatest needs. Lord, capture us with Him. Do these things, we pray, for your glory and for the benefit of your kingdom here in this church and city and around the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.